Is belief in Judaism self-evident? Are our principles of faith wholly rational and perhaps even obvious to any thinking person? Or is faith in God and Torah more complicated and suffused with questions than many would like to assume? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. An important element of preparing for Rosh Hashanah, the day that we crown Hashem as our king, is evaluating our own lives and our own beliefs. Do we have faith? Do we possess authentic trust in God? Deep down, what do we really think about the tenets of Torah Judaism? Do we accept them? Do we doubt them? Or maybe we do both simultaneously. Do we affirm them verbally? but question them intellectually? In short, how much do we really believe and why? In order to address questions of Amuna and to get a better sense of whether belief is logically compelling or whether it requires the proverbial leap of faith, I spoke with Jeffrey Bloom and Alec Goldstein, two of the editors of the recent book, Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai, Orthodox Judaism and Modern Questions of Faith. The book, however, was just a starting point. The main focus of our conversation was around why Jews can believe the things that we believe and why some people don't. Before we get into this conversation, I want to make it clear that with a big topic like this, we are obviously not going to address, never mind solve, all of the classic problems of faith. Consider this an introduction to some of the issues that require a longer conversation. We dealt with some serious issues, but there is so much more that I hope to continue talking about in future episodes. Jeffrey Bloom is a graduate of the University of Chicago and the co-editor of Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai, Orthodox Judaism and Modern Questions of Faith. After college, he studied at a number of yeshivot in Israel, including Machon Shlomo and the Mir, and now lives with his wife and four children in Clifton, New Jersey. He works as an analyst at a hedge fund and has been published in Mosaic, Commentary, and The New Criterion. He recently spoke at the University of Chicago on the topic of maintaining the life of the mind outside of the university. Alec Goldstein received his rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University, where he also earned his undergraduate degree in French language and literature. He has served in educational and rabbinic roles at Manhattan Jewish Experience, Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue, Mount Kisco Hebrew Congregation, and Yorkville Synagogue. He is the author of A Theology of Holiness, Historical, Exegetical, and Philosophical Perspectives, Maimonides on the Book of Exodus, and a co-editor of Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai. He is the founder of Kodesh Press, which has published over 75 unique titles of Jewish philosophy, commentary, history, and related subjects since inception in 2013. He currently lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, with his wife and daughters. Mr. Jeffrey Bloom and Rabbi Alec Goldstein, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank Thank you, you, Rabbi Khan. Thanks for having us. By way of introduction, Jeff, let's talk about the book that you, Rabbi Goldstein, and Rabbi Gil student edited together, Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai. In your introduction, Jeff, you say that you approached various scholars, the contributors, in order to reply to Leo Strauss's defense of orthodoxy, a defense which is interesting because, first of all, he wasn't orthodox himself, and second of all, his defense is somewhat meek in the sense of, well, you can't disprove it. That's kind of where it comes down to. Can you briefly summarize what you asked the contributors to do and what they ended up doing in the book? Sure, sure. So, in, in short, uh, Leo Strauss is, was, he died in 1973. He was a well-known political philosopher who taught at the University of Chicago. In his youth, he wrote 
a book about Spinoza in his later, you know, later on, the book was reissued. It was originally in German, it was reissued in English. He wrote a preface to it where he lays out, among other things, as you point out, a defensive orthodoxy against Spinoza that is, the defense essentially is that orthodoxy, if it claims to simply believe the tenets of its faith and not claim to know them, then it has firm ground to stand on because the, it, that ground is actually the same ground that Spinoza and his heirs of the Enlightenment are standing on, that they don't really know, they, they, they might pretend to know the, the, the foundations, the axioms of that they're, that they're based on, but they really don't. So therefore, everyone's really working on some sort of faith system, and Orthodox Judaism is no worse off than the, the Enlightenment. So we took this passage of Strauss um, from this preface to his book on Spinoza, and we asked a number of serious Orthodox thinkers, does Orthodoxy have a better self-conception, a better defense of its views than the one Strauss makes on its behalf. Because Strauss never really asks Orthodox Jews in this essay what they think. He sort of puts this in our mouth, so to speak. He speaks on our behalf, but never speaks to us. So this is an attempt to let Orthodoxy speak in its own name, so to speak, on what seemed like a somewhat fundamental question. Okay, that's a good introduction to what we're going to talk about today. I'll open the main part of our conversation by talking about an interaction I had a few days ago with a friend of mine, and he had listened to my interview with Rabbi Mark Wilds, who is someone who runs Manhattan Jewish Experience, a Kiruv organization. I had mentioned in that podcast something along the lines that I had a concern that Kiruv could be paternalistic or condescending, implying that we have all the truth when perhaps we believe that, but it can turn into objectifying the, for lack of a better term, the subject or the objects of our Kiruv. And my friend disagreed with me on this point and with my attitude. He said that pragmatically, we shouldn't be condescending, but we do possess a truth and they don't possess the truth. And how can we help but feel that we know something that they don't know? He compared it to an attitude towards anti-vaxxers. Now, I've been very vocal in the past that I am very much against the anti-vax position. I think it's unscientific. It's not based on anything. And he is as well. And he said, you are condescending towards anti-vaxxers. Clearly, that is the way I think about it. Is this any different? At first, I tried to defend myself by saying, well, it's very different because anti-vaxxers are hurting everybody else. Vaccines depend on many people getting it, but that's really avoiding the problem. And he's right by saying that. Here's my question, and Alec, I'll ask you to start off. Is there a difference between being condescending to anti-vaxxers because they're being anti-scientific versus being condescending to the people who are trying to be makarev to bring closer to Judaism because we know the truth that they don't see it and it's just as scientific as vaccines are scientific? Well, first of all, thank you, Rabbi Khan, for having us. And I want to commend you for your uh, wonderful interview with Rabbi Mark Wilds. Um, it was a fascinating listen and um, definitely encourage people to listen to that. Um, me, personally... I try not to take condescending tones in, in communication. And this is, you know, touches maybe more on politics than on religion, but I feel like in broad strokes, there's like three basic ways or modes that we, com we communicate when it comes to both politics and religion. Um, the first is to fortify or motivate the base. Uh, so the people that already agree with you, um, you know, it's very easy to you know, be, give them a chizuk, but at the same time, that often comes off as um, alienating or inflammatory. Uh, the second is to persuade the undecided. 
so that's somebody they don't know, like, are vaccines a good thing or a bad thing? Do I want to be orthodox or not orthodox? Do I believe, right? Uh, so that would be a very different tone of voice. And the third part, which I think that a lot of us tend not to do, is to try to speak in a way that takes the vitriol out of the other side. So you and I might not agree on any particular political issue or a whole host of political or religious issues, but does that mean that we're calling each other names? Or does that say, look, I get where you're coming from. Here's where I'm coming from and not to um, name calling. When it comes to Kiru, I think that there's you know, an issue. I mean, I think this goes back to the machlokas between Rashi and Ramban, where about, about, uh, about Hino, one says that it's uh, the child becomes a chetz, uh, a mitzvah, right? Which is almost... An object of a mitzvah. Correct, correct. An object of a mitzvah, which is at the risk, not to say anything negative about any of our Rishonim, but is at the risk of, in today's world, being perceived as devaluing them as a person and their personal autonomy. Um, now, as a child, it's different than as an adult. So I think we do have to be very careful that, you know, and like Rabbi Wild said, you know, there are a lot of people that are very, very well educated. They're very firm in their beliefs and very justified in what, in what they believe. And if we come at it as, you know, we have all of the answers and that we know better than you, yes, of course, we're going to turn people off. There's no question about that. And that goes back to the political point is that, look, here's why I believe what I believe. And taking the vitriol out can create a substantive and meaningful dialogue. I hear what you're saying, and I certainly agree with that. The problem is, though, you're speaking more on pragmatic grounds. I'm talking more in terms of what we fundamentally believe, not about what's the smart way to do Kiruv or the most effective way to do Kiruv. I think the person I was talking to and I, our discussion really centered on, even if it's not a pragmatically good way of doing things, do we really still think we have the truth and they don't? And therefore, by definition, I have a paternalistic attitude. If I'm trying to do Kiruv, let me put it in different terms. I have a truth which is reasonable, which is logically consistent, which I believe to be true. I want you to have this same truth. By definition, I'm saying I know more than you do. Whether it's a pragmatic approach or not, that's, that's a different question. But I'm talking about the internal attitude, that I know more than you do. That's really what I'm can, asking. Can, can, I, can I jump in on this? Yes. Um, Rabbi Khan, I actually don't know your exact background, but I, I'm about to. I went through, through yeshivas that were basically cure of yeshivas. I went through the summer cure program to get to these cure of yeshivas. You know, I would say I have a couple thoughts on this. There was an excellent, excellent essay published in Mosaic magazine. It was a commencement address. It was a basically an adaptation of a commencement address that Hillel Halkin gave at Shalom College. And one of the questions he asks basically in this, this essay is, does orthodoxy think it has anything to learn from the non-orthodox world? And I, I happen to think that that is a absolutely crucial question that orthodoxy has to face. You're, you're essentially raising it. And I wrote him a note. I haven't heard back from him. He doesn't have to answer my, my emails. But the, the, what I expressed to him was, I think the answer is that, or, the, that orthodoxy does have a lot to learn from non-orthodoxy. In particular, and this might sound odd, but how to read its own texts. What I mean by that is, one of the things that I got at the University of Chicago, I, I had the, the privilege of studying with, with Leon Cass. Leon Cass, you know, is a, he's a doctor by, by training. He's a philosopher by avocation. He's a reader of the, the Bible. He's written two books, a book on Genesis, a book on Exodus. And if, if an Orthodox person who's grown up in yeshivas and is, reads these books, you, you encounter someone who knows how to read. 
uh, knows how to read carefully, closely. Sometimes he um, works out things that um, are in Chazal. Sometimes he goes a different direction. But even when he's going a different direction, you have to use an intelligent Orthodox reader would want to consider why he's going a different direction. I think there's a lot to be learned from someone like Leon Cass about how to read our own texts. That would be one one thing point I'd make. We have a lot to learn from other people. The second thing is, I think that there's a big difference in like in a lot of my experience of the Orthodox world is you have to get past the the middle managers. I mean, the middle there's a layer of people in the Orthodox world who are who they are, and sometimes they're insecure, and sometimes they're condescending, and they've got their shtick. But when you get past them to sort of the the top people. I think you encounter an attitude that is not condescending, that appreciates other people. At least that's in my experience. I can't say that experience is universal, but I think if you'd like, for example, one of my teachers was just interviewed on a different podcast by David Bashevkin, uh, Rabbi Barrow Gershenfeld. And, you know, David asked him basically this question, does everyone have to become Orthodox in your view? And if you listen carefully, what he sees, his answer is not yes. His answer is he thinks everyone needs to grow. He's a friend, he's a mentor, he's a, he's a teacher, a Rose Colel in England, who is simultaneously very, very from and very, very unfrom. And I think he appreciates other people. I don't know. I, I just don't. I, I think that the attitude you're talking about exists, but I think that, you know, a person can. It, uh, yes, it exists, and yes, it doesn't exist. So let me push a little bit more on this particular point. There's a very well known Ma'amar by Rebbe Khanna Wasserman. And at the risk of oversummarizing this in a way which doesn't do justice to what he said, he effectively says, why is it that people become not religious? Ultimately, it comes down to their self-interest because there's some reason that they wanted something else, taiva, whatever. And effectively, what he's saying is that being religious, being an Orthodox Jew is so self-evident that it can't be that someone had an intellectual problem with Orthodoxy. There must be some other reason that people leave. Now, as someone who's been teaching for many years, with all due respect to Rabbi Hanan, of course, I just don't accept that argument. I have a very difficult time with that. I think there are reasons that people leave that while I am a believing Orthodox Jew, I don't think it is logically compelling to the point that anyone who doesn't believe this is simply an idiot. That's sort of what I'm asking now. And therefore, if you if you hold by Rebel Hanan, and I'm not saying the person I was talking to the other day is agreeing with Rebel Hanan or not. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But if you hold by that sort of attitude, that this is self-evident, anyone who looks at this logically will agree with the tenets of Judaism, call them the Ikari Amun of the Rambam, the principles of faith, or whatever you want, however you define Judaism. It's so obviously true. The only reason anyone would ever not believe it is because there must be something else going on. There must be something else apart from their own mind, apart from their own intellectual reasoning, which is causing them to think otherwise. And sort of, I think, the person I was talking to in that attitude, we'll get away from him per se, that attitude believes that and is saying, of course, how could anyone not be religious? By definition, therefore, we're going to be condescending. I don't really want to talk about Kiruv per se. It was more of a way to get into these questions. So I want to ask the two of you what your feelings are. And Jeff, we can start with you about that Rebbe Hanan and that general attitude. We don't have to speak about Rebbe Hanan per se, but the attitude that Judaism is self-evident. It's a great question. And in a way, you know, the, the introduction of the book, really is trying to get at that exactly this because it's not i don't talk about an introduction to the book i'll talk about it here i've talked about it elsewhere the psychological autobiographical backstory behind the introduction is essentially me questioning that revel Hanan because you know i know for myself 
that I have biases and motivations to want to accept orthodoxy because I, you know, in short, I, my, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. My parents are divorced. I was very attracted to Orthodox Jewish family life. So there's a part of me that has a strong bias towards orthodoxy. And part of part of the sort of the the song underneath the the sort of prose of the introduction is this this feeling that I, I know that for myself, there's certain things that resonate very deeply in, with me. And I know that someone else could come and say to me, Jeff, look, I've had very different life experiences. I have a very different cast of mind. And you know what? I find orthodoxy far less attractive to you. I might even find it repugnant and repulsive. I'm going to slam my door on the way out, or I'm going to just bark at it from the outside and say, it's, I, I'm not into it, whatever the case is. So I feel like we live in a time where it's it's hard because you don't want to reduce every, you know, every idea to autobiography. At the same time, a sensitive, thoughtful person looks at themselves, looks at other people and does see how autobiography impacts what we think and what we believe. Alec, how about you? What would you say to someone who argues that Judaism is self-evidently true? I mean, I, it's when you were saying over that mamar, which I admit I don't know offhand, but I'm pretty sure there's a Gemara that says something very similar, something to the effect of so something to that effect. I'm not quoting it verbatim. So I understand where that impulse is coming from, the desire for self-interest, but, but there are a lot of people that they have, whether it's, you know, um, political issues with certain, with certain texts, or they're just not persuaded that it's true. And, um, you know, I think we make a mistake when we just say that, like, if somebody is objecting to X, Y, and Z controversial thing, in the Homish, in Tanakh, and the Gemara, um, that to just say that they're late Sodom and to say that they're um, to say that they're scoffers or, or whatever it is, and and I see this a lot, and like I challenge people who do that, I say, look, like you and I might think that they are late Sodom, uh, that very well might be true, but you're not going to get the vitriol out by calling them late Sodom. You're not going to you're not going to be able to show what the underlying mechanics are of why we believe what we believe. And some defenses go better than others, of course, you know, uh, but to be able to have those types of defenses as well. And I think it's also there's um, an ennui, for lack of a better term, a disenchantment of boredom, whether it's with shul or with Shabbos, that, that's, you know, sometimes people say, you know what, they begin to look for, for other outlets. And I think that this is kind of one of the driving forces in the book is that on the one, on the one hand, the contributors to this book are Orthodox Jews, and they believe that Judaism is true. They believe in that they believe in God. They believe in revelation in a traditional, conventional sense, and they they believe in in Misar and all of the basic things, whether it's Yom Kippur. But they believe in and one of the essays, Jeff, I don't know, remember which one actually lays out what his propositions are of what it means to be an Orthodox Jew, and it was very, very good. Uh, Jeff, do you remember who that was? Yeah, uh, Professor J- Josh Golden's essay starts off with a kind of a, an attempt to, to define what is an Orthodox Jew. And it was excellent. It wasn't Maimonidean per se, but it was excellent. But at the same time, there needs to be there needs to be meaning. And, you know, Rabbi Wilds um, at MJE, there's a sign there uh, on the wall, or at least it used to be there. So that um, for the price of a chicken, you can save a Jewish soul. 
Uh, and the idea was that just by inviting somebody over, sitting, sitting with them, talking with them, not treating them as a chetzeshel mitzvah, but treating them as a human being and showing them the warmth and the beauty of Judaism, you can bring people in. You're not going to bring everybody in. And Rabbi Walsh is very clear about, about that. But even internal, I forget who said that we have to be, we have to do Kirov on our own people. We have to do Kirov internally as well. But I think that that's, you know, we try to be reductionist, right? We try to either say that, okay, I believe in God because of the Aristotelian proof or the, you know, or the teleological proof or this proof or that proof. Or we say beauty of Judaism, tradition, Mesorah, community, all of that stuff without giving the philosophical grounding. And I think that we as a community, we can walk and chew gum. We can do both. You know, it's like trying to say like, you know, uh, you know, what's, what's your favorite child? Or, you know, who, what's your favorite relative? No, it, you, you can't do that. I see you've got the, the image of Ted Williams behind you. Um, I'll forgive you for that. Uh, but, uh, but it's like, you know, who's your favorite baseball player? Like you might have two or three. We take this reductionist approach, which cuts off, you know, half of our audience. And that's the approximation, right? It could be 60, 40 or whatever. It could be three or 40. But we take a reductionist approach that alienates a significant amount of our audience. We have to say, yes, there is philosophical grounding. If you want us to get into the different proofs for the existence of God, then we can do that. And we have to have the training as a community to do that. At the same time, we need to show here's the meaning, here's the personal experience, here's the value that it adds. And if we're not doing both, then we're going to have a, we risk having a lackluster community. Alec, I'm a little bit confused. Can you explain what you mean that when we're reductionist, we turn people off? I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. So my wife believes in God because she just feels she has a personal relationship with God. She doesn't need to justify it. She doesn't need to defend it. It's just there. She just talks to God on a regular basis. If I try to talk to her about the Aristotelian proof for the existence of God, she'll look at me and say, why do you feel like you need to prove this? Why do you need this? I just believe in God because I have this deep belief in God. So if we're trying to talk only about the traditional proofs, at best you're going to be like, okay, that's nice, and then they're going to move on with their lives. But for somebody else who's like, look, I see there's some value and some beauty and some meaning, but I've got questions about the origin of it, and I've got questions about um, certain you know, modern social issues that where the traditional Judaism seems to be out of alignment. Then to just talking about the beauty and the beauty and the beauty of it and the utility of it, uh, again, it's like, okay, but they need grounding, right? So different people need different things. So the so the reductionist is are we reducing it to philosophical proofs or reducing it to the you know to the to the beauty and social utility? And I think we need to be able to combine both. And you know, we have the people that can do it. We just need to do it more. And I think that's one of the themes that runs through the book. I think that the book that we have here, probably the climate for it didn't exist when I was coming up as an Orthodox Jew going into Yeshiva in the early 1990s. What I mean by that is I feel there's kind of been a shift and maybe it's internet driven, whatever it is. Two things, two things have happened, I think. The Orthodox community is, is, is in, in certain respects very strong today. 
and the, and it's and the internet has obviously changed everything for everybody. So what I what I mean by that is if you read you know orthodox writing from the the seventies, eighties, nineties, there's a certain level of bombast that I think was driven by insecurity. The people rebuilt on the ashes of of Europe in the in the in the in the fifties, sixties, and that was the heroic era. Someone like me who shows up in night in the nineties is benefiting from that. That they there was no infrastructure to to come back to. You know, it would be game over. But I think I think that now you know we twenty twenty two, the orthodoxy in in some respects is so strong that it, it can look at itself with a little bit more security. No one's no one's gonna push us away and make us disappear. You know, a book like this, which sort of examines the the premises, so to speak. Is is possible, and I just if I would look at a pop culture phenomena that to me is very very telling. You know, in the English language magazine for Orthodox Judaism, uh, Mishpacha, there's a there's a there's a weekly cartoon in the back called the Kichels, and it's it's if if you're an insider to the culture, it, it, I find it very funny, but it's also very self-critical in a way that you know to see Orthodox Jews sort of looking at themselves, making fun of themselves. You can only do that when you are somewhat secure. When you're insecure, you're not. You know, don't don't make a joke about me. But, if, but when you're secure, you can make a joke about yourself. And I think that on the other hand, you can you can have a collection of essays about yourself that really tries to think through what we're doing here. And, and, and the question in the in the in the introduction is an open question, Me, meaning we're we're not saying tell me how we're right. We're saying there's these two premises. They seem equally balanced. How does one adjudicate between the, the underlying premises of the Enlightenment and the underlying premises of Orthodox Judaism? Discuss. It's not even, I think the conversation of, of Kirov and condescending, in a way, I understand why you're bringing it up, but in a way, it's sort of like a parallel. In a way, I, I wouldn't think of the book in that context, to be honest. I understand. I actually want to go into some of the ideas that may be expressed in the book and may not be, but just in general, right now, Alec, you mentioned, for example, that people might need an Aristotelian proof or the ontological proof for God's existence. You also say in your essay, Alec, in the book, that we are all children of Kant, which fundamentally means that those proofs are going to be lacking at the very least if they're worthwhile whatsoever. Let's leave that aside. Maybe we'll come back to that. But people nowadays, I would think, and you can argue against me, I'm not trying to say this is necessarily true, it seems to me that people who have problems with Orthodox faith, generally their problems will fall into one of three categories. This is how I see it as a summary. It might be a scientific problem, basically saying that God was necessary because people needed it because they didn't understand how the world works, but now we have a better scientific understanding of the world, thereby rendering God unnecessary. Whether that's historically true or not is a different question, because I realize some people say now that's actually not how it started. That may be how paganism started, but before paganism, there may have been a general sense of presence. But leaving that aside, I'm saying what the argument would be. The second one is the moral argument, the questions of theodicy. How can there be evil in the world? How could the Holocaust happen? How could all these terrible things happen in the world if God is all good? David Hume's famous argument, if God's all good and God's all powerful, how can there be evil in the world? Therefore, either God is not all good or not all powerful or doesn't exist. And the third problem is what might be called broadly the historical problem, saying that archaeology or literary criticism or anything else has shown that the tenets of your religion, whether it's the exodus from Egypt or the historicity of stories in the Tanakh or Revelation, they're not true. These are the three categories I would generally put it in. The first one, God is unnecessary. The second one, God is impossible. And the third one, your religion is false. 
within the third one, I could have a subcategory, which is that there's a moral problem within the tenets of the religion, whether it's lack of equality of the genders or seemingly immoral commandments, such as the commandment to destroy Amalek or the seven nations. I would say that's the subcategory of the historical problem. I'm laying it all out there right now. I'm being very, very blunt about what these problems are. And to me, these are the three primary impediments to belief, or perhaps reasons that people who want to believe can't believe. I say this as an Orthodox Jew who believes, but I'm curious how you would answer people who come to you with these questions. We're entering the period before Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. We're talking about the time the king is in the field. This is a time for experience of God. First of all, I don't know if you have additional reasons that people wouldn't believe, but in addition to that, perhaps you can both tell me how you think about these issues, how you think about them broadly. I know in a podcast, you're not going to answer every problem that people have with faith, but as a general approach, what would you say about them, Jeff? So I think you laid them out really, really well. I think there's two two things I would say as sort of framework ways to think about them. One is that, you remember, this is how I saw the book, is that, you know, if there are things in here in the book that are helpful for someone, great. I'm not pushing any. First of all, I didn't write an essay answering the question. I just wrote an essay asking the question. My own personal theological views were not on really on display in the in the book that much. So when I, when I say what I say here is really, you know, my personal views, how I make sense of these issues. I'm not speaking for Judaism as a whole. I'm saying these are the ideas that resonate in in Jeff Bloom. If they're helpful to someone, good. If, if not, if you find other ideas, great. I think the big thing, when you lay all that out, these are all topics that I live with and deal with and, and question, but within Orthodox Judaism. Meaning th- none of them stop me from being an Orthodox Jew, but they're all lifelong. They're not. Pro- I want to distinguish between problems to be solved and questions to be asked. A problem is, you know, I have a question, I answer it, I'm done, I, I, I cross the T, I dot the I, it goes away. Everything you just mentioned are things that any thinking Orthodox Jew, you know, is going to be spent his whole life peeling layers of the onion on, you know, and hopefully if we had this conversation five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we'll have better answers and better thoughts on a deepening of all our thinking about these questions than we have now. So that is just like, that's the first thing. I come out of a very University of Chicago, Straussian, that's my youthful, my gears to the Yankusa for people who know the, the jargon. And, and, and what that means for me is a very, you know, a very, I'm skeptical of historicism. What I mean, by, when I say historicism, what I mean is when we, as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, you'd read Plato, you'd read Aristotle, you'd read Hobbes, Locke, whatever you'd read. And there, was, there wasn't an attitude of, you know, how does, how does Hobbes and Locke and Plato and Aristotle, how do they reflect the prejudices of their time? How are they reflections of the, the thought of their time? It was, what can they teach us? You know, what's the truth content here? Where, what can we learn from Hobbes, Locke, Plato, so, so forth and so on? So in, in Orthodox Judaism, I think there's sort of a tightrope walk between historicism. I mean, I'll, give, I'll just give very, very, I'll give a very, very good example. I, I like very much Rabbi Joshua Berman's book, Animami. But, as I, but one thing that's very powerful about that book is that he gives, one of the things he discusses in there at length is the, 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 the he shows how, I mean, I'm not going to, I assume he's right about this, that let's stipulate he's right about this, that the, the, the layout of the Mishkan really mirrored 
the layout of the Egyptian, you know, uh, palace or something. I don't remember the exact detail, but so so you read this, you go, oh my gosh. So what what happens to all the lessons that 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 Chazal at, at various levels of shot and and, and sewed learn out from all the details of, of of the Mishkan? Doesn't that just go away? Because look, it's just it's just it's just basically reflecting the history of its times. So I think that the the the, the tightrope walk is to me. The subtlety of thinking as an Orthodox Jew is that things have an outer history and they have an inner history. That things can have a, a, a history that is what we call historical, but there's but the, what the Agadita, what Chazal, what Kabbalah is is teaching, you know, sort of an inner history of what's go what's what these things are doing. And that, but so you're always walking this tightrope between if you historicize something too much. You're reducing it to the history of its time. If you abstract it too much and allegorize it too much, you're lifting it completely out of this story. Judaism is a historical phenomenon that went through the history of the world. We are Jews in the, in the world. So I, I, I think that that's just, that's just something that I think about a lot and try to think about it in, in an intelligent way. So that's really the third prong of the, that you're talking about. I'll let Alec talk about the uh, thoughts on the other two, but let me stop Okay, there. Alec, how about you take a shot at this as well? Uh, so if I'm understanding that your categories are one, the, the scientific problem, two, the problem of evil or theodicy, and then three, the textual slash moral problem, which I personally might break up. Um, but in terms of the science problem, right, that's, I forget who coined the phrase, the God of the gaps, and that as science advances, and thank God science does advance, uh, then the role that religion has and the truth content that religion can make gets smaller and smaller and smaller as other disciplines that are perceived to be more rigorous are able to encroach on that space. I was just talking to a friend last week where he quoted an idea that Sam Harris says something like this, the atheist Sam Harris, that the reason why religion keeps on retreating is that because science scientists keeps bashing religion over the head about these points. And I've got two responses to that. Okay, maybe three responses. One is that Proofs for the existence of God based on certain scientific principles and the God of the gaps are known to fail. When I see those, I just kind of discount those. Two, uh, Edward F uh, Fesser, or Fesser, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, F-E-S-E-R, um, he says that historically most proofs for the existence of God are not based on scientific arguments. So, you know, so, so we need to be careful, are we speaking the same language? The more postulates or axioms you have in your system, the more you need to defend, right? So if I want to say that everything in Tanakh and everything in Gemara and everything in Midrash and everything in Kabbalah is literally and indisputably factually historically true, then besides for the fact that there are internal contradictions, let's put that apart, right? But that as soon as there's one thing that challenges it from the outside, then the whole system is at risk, right? Where if we say, you know, that some of the things can be, you know, allegorized or whatever, and we can debate that, and I'm not interested in debating what can and cannot be allegorized right now, uh, or discounted as the signs of the time, that's not the hill we want to die on, right? That's not an axiom. That's not an internal part of the system. But I think there's a deeper thing, which is that, and this is what I said to my friend who was, you know, quoting this line from Sam Harris, is that science is very good at things it can measure. 
And thank God we have science and technology. And we're talking on Zoom in three different cities in two different countries. Science struggles. That's a nice way of saying it. When it comes to questions of value and meaning and fulfillment. So if somebody says, oh, the world was created in six 24-hour periods. Okay, new. Like, you want to believe that? Don't believe that? I don't care. Like, it doesn't bother me. But it cannot deal with those questions, and we've seen this, you know, coming out of the out of the out of the pandemic, where things like mental health have been affected. The need, you know, the need for community, for interaction, for fulfillment, for self actualization has been shown to be more powerful than maybe we ever knew uh, that, that it was to begin with. Um, I want to, I do have, you know, response to the, the Odyssey and the textual and moral issues. But I know that Jeff wants to add something on the science part. Yeah, Jeff, can you add something to this? Yeah, I, I do want to add. So I want to. I think that just to, to jump in right where Alec is, I want to read a, a short quote from something that Leon Cass wrote in his book about about Genesis, and he's talking about the first chapter of Genesis, and he says he writes, "If the major intention of the of the first chapter is not historical but ontological, ethical." and theological. Genesis is not the sort of book that can be refuted or affirmed on the basis of scientific or historical evidence. This is, I repeat, not because it is myth or poetry, but rather because its truths are metaphysical and ethical, not scientific or historical, because it teaches mainly about the status and human meaning of what is, rather than about the mechanism by which things work or came to be. And and that is a view, I think, that is well represented within Orthodox. I think Rabbi Jonathan Sachs had roughly a similar view, that we're really talking about two different spheres of truth. And, and that's that's pretty much how I see the world. So I know, Alec, you have more to say about the other categories I mentioned, but I want to ask you both about this particular point. Jeff, right now you mentioned that we're talking about ontological, ethical, theological truths in Genesis rather than what might be called philosophical or scientific truth. So let me ask you what truth means when it comes to religion. You just mentioned right now there's more than one kind of truth. We are veering into postmodernism perhaps over here by saying truth isn't an absolute value. But my question has two parts. First of all, how do we define truth according to this when it comes to religion. And the second part is, would you therefore say, and this is something which I've wondered about, that the movement to assume that Judaism is a philosophy or a system of beliefs about how the world works, which some medieval rationalists believed, do you think that that's not necessarily tenable anymore or perhaps is not necessarily the only way to look at what Torah Judaism is? The Bible is not a book of philosophy. Uh, It is not written in philosophical language. Uh, it, it does not use didactic proofs. Uh, it doesn't. At the same time, it has philosophical underpinnings. And I think you can see this as a tradition that exists in many civilizations. I don't think it's a mistake that Homer and Sophocles preceded uh, Socrates and Aristotle, that literature often precedes philosophy and it's only the later generations that can pick up and analyze those philosophical claims and you you see this also in english literature as well that 
with Chaucer, with Shakespeare, with Milton, then you get uh, to other to other philosophers who are you know like Mill, for example. So I don't think that that's uh, I, I don't think that that's a, a coincidence that you see this that the literature with deep philosophical themes will precede the will, will precede the philosophy. But to read the arguments back into Chumash and Tanakh, a lot of times they're not there in uh, philosophical jargon. And for somebody like myself that's philosophically inclined, that can be a little bit disappointing. And then I have to go look at the uh, and, and go look at the, the commentaries that deal with it. But it's kind of like, what is the underlying argument? Because it's often not spelled out. And then we look at the commentaries, and then we can begin to build back the edifice in philosophical language, if that's what we're looking for. Okay. Can we also say that there's more than one kind of truth? Because often in philosophy, we understand there is a truth with a capital T. Now we're talking about using some of the terms that Jeff used before. There might be multiple truths, whether it's the truth of what meaning is rather than historical or philosophical truth. Would you say that's true for Torah as well, for Torah Judaism, that we're talking about a different kind of truth? Let me give you an example. Let me let me take it to sort of radical territory. Once upon a time, I know that the Ramban and the way that I read Rashi, they do not say this, but the vast majority of people who read the first parak of Breshit assumed it was speaking, to the degree they understood the concept of history, of an historical reality, that the world was created in six 24-hour days, followed by a seventh day, which was called Shabbos. And in fact, that is so ingrained in the way we think about the world that every Friday night, Three times we say the paragraph by Yehulu. In fact, one of the times, immediately after the Amidah and Mariv, we say it out loud, and some people explain that our saying it out loud is a type of testimony that this is true. The vast majority of people in the modern Orthodox world today, or the centrist Orthodox world, if you ask them, did God literally create the world in six 24-hour days? I know there are some people like Gerald Schroeder and others who say that is true on some level, but I think the majority of modern Orthodox Jews would say, no, it's not literally true. It's teaching me a different kind of truth. It's teaching me something about how God created the world. Whatever it is teaching, that, that's something we can argue about. But we don't take it literally. We understand it, however, as a truth. We say it as testimony. We actually do aided on this. We believe it's true, even though it's not that kind of truth. It's not historical or scientific truth. It's a different kind of truth. What do you think of that? I guess I'm throwing it out at you like that. So I, I asked Rabbi J. David Bleich um, once. I said, well, wait a second. You can't have Edo's right, of relatives. So, how, so what if you've got two brothers sitting at shul uh, who are both saying it, you know, or a father and a son who are saying it over? And he looked at me. And if you know Rabbi Bleich, like you'll understand this. He just said, Ain Makavlin Edo's <laughs> We do not accept testimony at night and the 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 the, edos, the testimony that you're talking about um that we say friday night after after the main prayer the main the main amida is uh is at night by definition and we do we have a halakhic legal principle that we do not accept testimony at night so this is typical if i can coin a term bleichian logic to to just on a very technical ground say yes it's a beautiful idea it's a nice idea but it's not shot because it violates this other halakhic legal principle. <laughs> but my point still stands that we're saying this is true, but what we mean by truth is not the same thing as testimonial truth in the classic sense in the court of law, that the world was created in six days. I'm simply using this as a strong example of a fundamental of Judaism, the idea that the world was created by God in six days, followed by Shabbos. And yet at the same time, many of us acknowledge that 
this might be an example of having multiple truths, that there's such a thing as literal truth and other truths. And perhaps we can apply this to other places. I'll be honest, I haven't, I haven't dived into that, dove into that. Um, that's, you know, if you want to believe the world was created in six days, go right ahead. I don't think it violates much. I don't think it hurts that much. Uh, if you want to say that it's an evolutionary perspective and that it's teaching that God is, that the world just didn't descend from heaven, that uh, uh, that there's meaning in the world and we show that God was very deliberate, and organized and structured in everything, in all of nature, in the laws of physics that he created. And that's why the Torah recounts it in this way. Or that we need a Shabbos, whether it's in seven days or 10 days or whatever it is, and that the, the, the best way to reverse engineer it would be to say that God created it in six days and rested on the seventh. Any one of those is fine from, from my perspective. I don't think any of them hurt. Uh, I, you know, and, but what I mean is that you're now defining truth in a different way than our ancestors defined truth when looking at that same phrase, in all likelihood. They might have looked at that as well, but we're saying there is such a thing as multiple truths out there. It's not as simple as it's either true or false. It's I'm not going to call it a continuum. I'm going to say that there are different definitions of truth when it comes to religious truths. Before you talked about the truth content of something. So how you define truth per se is itself a question. It's not always historical truth. It can sometimes be truth and meaning, which is what you're saying now. If the premise is, is there some problem for orthodoxy to, to admit that there's different kinds of truths? doesn't seem to me like a big shocker or like a big oh no. I, and one of the essays in the book that most closely reflects my own view of the world is from one of my teachers, Rabbi Jeremy Kagan. And the, basically the whole, the whole essay is basically saying that the question presumes to you know, adjudicate between the axioms of orthodoxy and Western rationality by using the tools of Western rationality, says basically the, the, the but the problem is the answer to the question really comes from a different kind of truth, a little bit more akin to what Alec is, is referring to. That the, I liked Alec's picture that literary and poetic truth often precedes philosophical truth. In a way, what Rabbi Kagan's essay is trying to do is sort of what aspect of the pre- Western rationalistic truth can we still access today in the world that we live in without cosplaying that we're pretending to be something that, that we're not. I think other authors outside of orthodoxy and someone like uh, Ian McGillchrist or McGillchrist, I don't know how he pronounces his name, is someone who's kind of, you know, uh, working the same beat, so to speak. That That's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing is the question of literalism is one that's a big one that I have tried to think a lot about. Um, and what I would say when you bring up the idea that, you know, most centrist non-Orthodox Jews don't believe that the world is created literally in six days, the question then becomes, what is an allegory in the Torah? And, and is an allegory in the Torah something like, let's say, you know, the book Animal Farm? If I ask you, you know, can I go visit the farm? Where, the, where the, you know, you, you'd say, Jeff, you know, you don't really understand what kind of book this is. It's an allegory. There, there's no farm. But it's not false. But it's not false. That's not necessarily the right term. What I, what I really want for myself, and again, just if this resonates with people, great. If people think I'm, I'm, I'm remaking the Torah in the image of University of Chicago, I might be guilty of that. My first year at Baal Yeshiva, someone asked one of the teachers, 
you know, is the, is the Garden of Eden a real place? And, it, and so the teacher brought out, there's a safer from a book from Rev. Moshe Chaim Lutzato called Das Tavunas, I think in English translation, it's called The Knowing Heart or whatever that's, they call it. I don't know, it's very hard to translate those words, Das Tavunas, into any kind of uh, coherent English words. But there's a passage there where he says that, you know, the, the, the trees of the Garden of Eden were real trees. The eating was real eating. And the trees were, you know, spiritual trees that unlike anything you could imagine, and the eating was sort of this sort of spiritual eating. So I think it's a lifelong effort to unpack what that means. But I think once you start down that road, the idea that, you know, my current working, and I, this is, I, hope, I really hope 10 years now we discuss this, I'd have a better, richer view of it. But my, my current working view of what that means is very much based on, um, there's a sefer called the Shiri Das by Rav Yosef Leib Blach, Zechertak Lebrach of Taos, who's Roshi of Taos before the war. And he is really, he's really, he's almost plagiarizing in a good way the, the Shla Koda. You see the passage in the Shla is basically saying the exact same thing. That, and the basic idea is that, you know, the same words can encompass a spiritual reality and a physical reality. And when we talk about days, there might be such a thing as a metaphysical day um, that, that, that literally exists. There's such a, that's the point. It doesn't metaphorically exist. It literally exists as, a, as, as something that is real. And this really gets back to a fundamental thing for us, which is what's real for us. Is, 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 is physicality real for us? Is spirituality real for us? Our starting point is the reality of, of physicality and everything that is spiritual, sort of an epiphenomena, like an illusion, whereas these thinkers are really saying the opposite. They're, they're saying what's, what's more, what the real baseline is a spiritual reality, and th the physical world might be an epiphenomena to some extent, or well, whatever, however it works out. But the point, the, 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 the bigger point I'm, 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 I'm driving at is really to say that I'm not sold on a sort of, you know, a binary literalism, the, the way you des describe it. So I, I think, that, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Well, I'll say that I agree with you. And I think that rather than saying, oh, there are multiple truths is a problem, I think that's actually a solution. It could actually solve a lot of our problems by getting away from that binary, it's either true or false, and say, well, there's such a thing as religious truth, which isn't necessarily the same thing as historical truth or scientific truth in a given case, but that doesn't make it any less true. It depends what you define as truth in a given case. So I, I'm on the same page when it comes to that. Alec, I interrupted you before. You were about to talk about the theodicy issue, the problem of evil in the world. Yes, yeah, so you, you had kind of laid out that there were three basic, if you will, intellectual objections, the scientific, the problem of evil, and then the textual or moral objection. Um, in terms of theodicy, so um, there's a philosopher, uh, J.L. Mackey, who kind of lays it out as three. I kind of broke it out into, into five problems, which is that God exists, God is omnipotent, which means he can do anything. He is omniscient, which means he knows all, and he's omnibenevolent, which is all good, and that evil exists in the world. And it's those five that, in my mind, create the technical problem. If I had to use the, the, the tools of analytic philosophy to technically state the problem, it would be the confluence of those five. And the way to resolve it is one of two ways. Either you negate one of those five, 
for Archivo and you add a sixth harmonizing principle. You know, an extreme example, which I don't think is prevalent in the Orthodox world, but sometimes you'll hear people say, like, there's no such thing as evil, right? Everything's perceived evil, right? Gamzulatoma, which is not actually what the Gemara is dealing with, right? Because there are two other issues before they get to Gamzulatoma, which is also interesting, two other resolutions before that. Um, but the Ramchal is very clear citing the book that you mentioned before and that Jeff mentioned before, the Ramchal is quite clear in Dat Tvunot that ultimately in the end we'll see how everything was good. So that certainly is a real stream in Judaism. But to show how everything is good in the future... He says it will take the ultimate future to know that, but it's something which we know intellectually now, but we can't really understand it. It's something which will become clear, he says, in the ultimate future, not now. Right, so I think it's it's Saul Kripke who talks about that pain is the perception of pain, right? That like gold, you know, it could be that gold is... uh, we don't have the proper scientific understanding of gold. You know that our, our you know, that, that different different atoms and neutrons and whatever and electrons create is we don't have. But pain is irreducible to to you know, to something else. So it could it could be, and I and with, with all deference de- de- deference to the to the room call. But um, let me say it differently. I personally, and this could be my own limitation, have not seen a rigorous, sophisticated defense of the idea that evil does not exist. That evil does not exist. Yeah. So the, but the point is that one of those five, now atheists will just deny the existence of God, which will then knock everything else off. You have people who deny God's, God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, or omnipotence, or you add another, a sixth harmonizing principle. And I actually worked this out. There's about 17 principles. <laughs> this may or may not be a book that I put out in the future, but that, for example, um, uh, the, the idea of free will, right, or the idea of that something else, something worse would have happened, or that there's some sort of test that's going. And so, so the point is that there are philosophical defenses. Alvin Plantinga has a famous defense. Um, he says that technically, you know, he says, he says that God could not have created the world where there was no evil. We've got the free will defense. We've got the Leibniz defense. Um, uh, the best of all possible worlds. So there are defenses, and if somebody wants to go down that road of the technical philosophy. Then we can then we can do that. And similarly with the textual problems, right? If somebody says like, okay, well, look, I've got some schools that are saying J E P D and H, and you're saying that it's H K B H. Hakadosh Baruch Right. Uh, how do I know which one is true? Well, it's like, well, well, but that's operating on its postulates, and we're operating on ours. But they can't prove their postulates. There's no archaeological evidence of some editor benign or or malicious saying i'm going to weave these texts together right and um so it's 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 a theory just like any other so but what what i want to just t- tie this all in is that we can give intellectual defenses to these but if somebody came to me and said how do you as a as an orthodox jew deal with the problem of you i probably wouldn't try to go to the intellectual side i would say why are you asking that and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but my guess is that at least 50% of the time, what's bothering them isn't some, you know, you know the, the way that William James put it, you know, the suffering of some fawn in a forest fire, slowly dying, but or the unrequited love of a cockroach is one of the examples that he gives, but that there's something that's very real and very serious that's going on in that person's life. And, that, and to get back to the human aspect and how to process, and I'm not a trained psychologist, I would not be the one to try to help them deal with that, you know, trauma. Uh, but I would definitely encourage them uh, to go and to recognize that there's a human behind the question. It's not a 
question on a black one. And this kind of ties into the question of believing in God, right? Are we looking at the academic blackboard side of things, or are we looking at the, the human meaning, real world, real human being aspect of the exact same question? I'd like to throw something else out, Alec, along with what you said. What you said right now is very compelling, and I appreciate it. Going back to what you said, that we're children of Kant, and this isn't a fully thought-out argument, but it's something that I have thought about in passing, which is that in a post-Kantian world where we acknowledge that our knowledge is very, very limited, or perhaps even better put, what knowledge is, is itself limited. This can be echoed in some ways in Kabbalistic understandings of how the world works. In fact, Rav Shagar has an essay where he talks about the difference between the Rambam's understanding of the priority of, I'm not sure what the right term is, but the priority of God's attributes, where wisdom is at the top, versus the Kabbalistic understanding, at least according to many Mukubalim, where will, keter, and will is even a, a general term, not an exact term, is higher than wisdom itself. And what that means practically is that the entire argument where you say God exists, God's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnibenevolent, and evil exists, is predicated on the assumption that there is some sort of answer out there. There is some sort of intellectual way of understanding it. It could be that human beings will never reach it because our minds aren't strong enough. But the infinite intellect could understand that. According to the Mukubalim, and perhaps I could even read that into Kant, not that he said this, but we could, read, we could use that as a vehicle, as a stepping stone towards this, there might be something above intellect what the Mukubalim would call Keter. It's not necessarily something which we can logically understand, not because our minds are good enough, but because a mind isn't, no matter how infinite the mind, no matter if the mind is infinite, it's not something that's accessible to mind. It's something higher than mind, the same way that a Keter, a crown is above a head. That's the symbolism there. And perhaps the entire question is predicated on the assumption that we can understand this, we just don't have the intellect to do so. Whereas, no, it's not understandable. There's some other thing that's higher up. We don't try to hear a color because an ear is not an appropriate vehicle for seeing color. It doesn't work. In the same way, intellect may not be an appropriate clee vessel for understanding the problem of evil in the world. There might be something higher than intellect per se. I, I don't know what you think of that, but that's something which I've thought about. I, if I can jump in, I happen to like that paradigm a lot. But then I would put it back to you, because when you say it like that, what I think to myself is, then ultimately the the question of whether one is a religious Jew, an Orthodox Jew, I don't want to, those terms really shouldn't be synonymous. I know a lot of religious Jews are not Orthodox Jews. I don't want to get a bunch of angry emails. The point I'm making is, it, you know, to what extent is it really a question of will? The hard part is that as you Rabbi Khan point out, the second we hear the English word will, a, f a thousand things flood into our minds that might not be what the mystics are talking about when they talk about what you're talking about. But right. it was used as a placeholder. You know, we it's no a placeholder, exactly. Keter is a better term because it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but something above intellect. There's something above. Is, is, the, is the decision to live a religious life, a life of Torah mitzvahs, a decision that's made somewhere above rationality or from a different tool than rationality. I happen to think it is. And I do I too. Happen to think it, the problem is then once you say that, then we kind of go back to where this conversation started, which is, you know, what stops me from them saying, well, you know, I'm the good guy. I'm the guy who made the, the, the will, the sort of, I had the will, the sort of underlying desire to lead this, 
moral religious life and look at the guy who isn't is somehow lacking in in that facility so i I really put the question back to you because that because i struggle because i don't want to be an arrogant jerk but when when i get to that frame that's how we differ i could i could see how you could like i could see how you could end up in a place where you look at the world like well i'm i'm the guy who has the good well, and the guy who's not being religious, he's a stubborn guy who just doesn't want to accept the truth. For whatever reason, he's, he's deceiving himself. How do, you, how do you think about it? That's a good question. I would say on the contrary, because it's not something which is given over to the intellect per se, where there are arguments on both sides. And by the way, that doesn't mean that nothing is rational. Even the Mukubalim would say God does work through rationality. It just means when you get to the ultimate question and rationality no longer works, there's something above rationality. It doesn't mean that God works capriciously or without any rationality. It just means that's not the final step. So if I were to say, though, that my belief in God is based on experience or based on apprehending him in person or whatever other non-intellectual way we want to describe— then there is no condescension. I'm fortunate enough to say that I feel God's presence. I feel bad that someone else might not have that same experience, but why does that make me a better person? It makes me a more fortunate person. So I don't necessarily see that as maybe that would be called condescending, that I think I'm fortunate to be an Orthodox Jew. But I hope that everyone who's a Torah Jew enjoys and gets meaning out of that and therefore finds good fortune in the fact that we have this in our lives. I don't think it comes down to being condescending, though. Let me, let me, let me challenge you on that. Someone comes and says, look, I, I grew up in an Orthodox home that was abusive, it was terrible. I slammed the door my way out. You know, there's, there's you know, a, a shelves full of memoirs like this now. And you, you're so fortunate, Rabbi Khan. You just grew up in this wonderful world. But I didn't grow up So isn't there still like a little a trace of condescension to that person? Like, you know, do you pity them? Do you look at them as objects of pity? Like, you know, I mean, honestly, have- I, I do a bit. I do. If somebody finds that Orthodox Judaism doesn't speak to them, I feel bad because it speaks so much to me. The right. fact that God is part of my life and that I feel that I've had experiences of God. I'm not a mystic, but I mean, moments when right. the presence of the of the Lord is something which is manifest for me. And the fact that I could be manifest in my family and my religious practice and the way I look at the world, that's a tremendous gift. The fact that someone else doesn't have that, I feel bad they don't. I don't think that's condescending. I I feel bad they don't have that gift in their life. They don't no, have to I feel like- bad about themselves, but for me, for something that's so important to me, I can feel bad that you don't have that. I'm not quite sure that comes down to I'm superior to you. There's something which I have which gives me meaning. The fact that that same thing doesn't give you meaning or the fact that you lack that experience that gives me meaning is something which, well, that's, I feel that's too bad that you haven't been able to enjoy it. Perhaps to take an example... If I have a good musical ear and I really enjoy listening to a symphony orchestra and somebody else is tone deaf and can't get anything out of it, I'm not being condescending by saying, oh, this is too bad you don't like it. It's something which really gives me a lot of joy. Chaval, that you can't enjoy it in the same way. Does that mean that the person is fundamentally lacking in their life? No, but there's something which gives me tremendous meaning, which you can't have as well. Let me add to that one final point, which perhaps is a bit radical. To me, God is the entity, is the reality that gives the world meaning in such a way that it doesn't descend into nothingness, nothingness with a lowercase n. And because of that, even though I love being a Torah Jew and I love Torah and I believe in the truth of Torah, the part that makes me feel sad for other people isn't that they aren't Torah Jews per se, but rather those people who don't have a sense of God in their lives at all. And as Rabbi Sachs said in The Dignity of Difference, and he got in a lot of trouble for saying this, God speaks to Jews through Judaism, to Christians through Christianity, to Muslims through Islam, that's not to take away or denigrate the truth of Torah. And by the way, Rav Sachs was really just echoing, I believe, Rav Soloveitchik in the halachic mind. 
So for me, I don't necessarily feel bad for someone who isn't a Torah Jew. I feel bad for someone who has no sense of eternal divine meaning in their lives. That's my own personal take on this. Alex, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I guess two things. One is that, you know, somebody like slams the door on the way out because they had a you know, negative and abusive, uh, neglectful experience. So the first thing is like, that's terrible. That's not defensible. That's not what Judaism is, is about. And I would also say that that person is, you know, they kind of know what they, for lack of a better term, need to do to find their way as, you know, as a human being. But I would say that that's not, that's not what Judaism is. That's not what it should be. That's something that the community is working on cleaning up. Let's leave it at that. In terms of the Keter thing, so here, here's the, 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 the conundrum, <laughs> both from a Kira perspective and even like me, like I, I, I've been beginning to think that I'm a mystic at heart in rationalist God. So you need to get, you need to be able to justify it rationally, or at least on a on a shot level, and then we can go into the to the mysticism. But mysticism without the shot or the rationalism, you know, I'm just speaking for myself at this point. That if you're going to say, oh, well, that's God's will, that's because that's not a defense. That's a big, you know, it's like I don't like to say to my three-year-old, don't do that because I said so. I hated when I heard that as a kid, and I don't like to do that. Well, that's why, Alec, I just want to tell you, because I I agree 100%, that's why, as Jeff and I said before, I'm loath to use the word will. It's something beyond intellect. It's, I know I'm kicking the can. I realize I'm just kicking it down the street to something else. But I'm not saying it's God's will per se. It's God's something that we don't understand in the so same that way transcends that wisdom. it's something that transcends intellect call it will because we have no better word it's a placeholder right. as jeff correctly said that's right. all i want to say it's not saying because i said so it's a little bit different than that well it kind of is it's saying that you have to suffer because i got sense it means that when you say you're suffering because it doesn't matter what comes after the because that is a fundamentally meaningless statement because implies there is some reason or logic behind it and this is saying there's something else. We don't know what it is. It's not because I said so. It's not because of the following reason. Because doesn't work here because it's not an intellectual thing. We as beings who are living inside and constricted inside a mind, we just can't go there. We don't have the clue to reach it. I, I'm, again, I realize right, right, it's a, right, it's right, a hedge. And, 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 it's right, a type right, of hedge. Analogy, I get that. Right, and the analogy is to a parent saying to a child because I said so. If you insist, so, assu- assu- assuming Assuming the parent is well-meaning, and unfortunately, not all parents are. But assuming that the parent is well-meaning, because I said so, there could be a very strong rational justification for it that either the parent feels like the child doesn't understand at the time, or there's no time to understand. Don't run into traffic, you know. And I don't have time to explain. It. I just have to pick you up against your will, right, and violate your you know, autonomy, if you will, right, uh, because there's something worse that the child doesn't understand could happen. Don't eat that because that's plastic and will choke, right? Or that don't drink that because that's Drano and you'll die. Um, God forbid. Uh, so there is that strand of thought, that transcendent justification, if you will. And But I think that in order to get there, both from a, to speak to, you know, not just to non-religious Jews, but also to people that are more, rationally inclined like myself, you need to be able to hit all of the steps in the middle. Right? If I'm about to run into traffic, you know, 
then okay, pick me up. By the way, even Mill, this is very interesting, you know, Mill, who's the, the father of, of libertarianism, he's like, no, if you know that the bridge is rickety, you have the right to go and whisk them off the bridge against their will, violating their autonomy, because you have the right to assume that they would not want to fall through a rickety bridge. Uh, but if that's not the case, and most things are not the, the, that dire, then yes, then, then yes, you know, you or we as a community have the obligation to be able to hit all of those intermediate steps to be able to say that, you know, yes, whether it's free will or, you know, or, you know, there's a challenge all of that. And there's, you know, a lot of people have written about this. It's not like we have to reinvent the wheel here. All we have to do is read our sources and not just the Ramchal. With all the deference to the Ramchal, Ramchal's fantastic. He's great. He's also not the only voice on the subject. And a lot of people, we jump there. It's like, because God said so. And I would just, you know, or because God chose to do it this way. And I would add one more point, which is that we see in the homage how many characters openly ask God about their frustrations. Whether it's Abraham, Moshe, David, like even Eob's response is bordering on because I said so. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's quite. It's pretty right. close, but not quite, pretty but it's pretty close. Right, it's pretty close. Pretty close. But in other cases, it's it's not. There's a there's some sort of explanation, or or there's at least no because I said so, right? So that it is we are allowed to ask this respectfully, deferentially, right? Not as gotcha, not as you know, not 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 as poking fun, but we are allowed to ask these questions and to retreat and to get there. I think can work for some people, and if it works, fantastic. But I think for a lot of people, we need to be able to hit those intermediate steps and explain it rationally, and then we can go to the super rational transcendent as well. And I think with God, you know, with God, it's the same thing. Is that when I told Jeff that in writing the essay for the, for this book, I had a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith, crisis of faith. Yes. Uh, because I was like, wait a second, I'm about to, but I didn't grow up religious. I became religious in high school, college. Uh, I went to issue university. And even though I was always philosophical, but I never like really sat down and why do I believe what I believe? And forcing me to do that um, really helped me uh, understand the underpinnings of my faith, which are both rationalist and super rationalist. And I spent a lot of time trying to bridge those two by justifying the validity of religious experience. Um, and uh, maybe just in the Elul, uh, since, since we're in Elul, maybe that could be a useful challenge for some people. Like we talk about you, we talk about returning to God. But what do we mean? And I don't mean have to write a treatise on it, you know, but to, what do we mean when we say God? What do we mean when we say return? What do we say when we mean that, you know, we believe in this and we, we, we believe it's true? And to understand the mechanics of it could be a beneficial exercise for at least for some people. I think those are all really, really strong points. And to come back down from my mystical Keter approach, one approach which you're alluding to, I think, and when you talked about this before with the free will argument or the idea that maybe it really isn't evil, there's another question of we don't know what God wants from us. We assume that my being happy is the ultimate good, whereas maybe God doesn't want me to be happy. Maybe there's some greater neshama type thing that's better for me in the long run if I'm not happy. Maybe there's something which I'm supposed to accomplish in terms of building myself as a human being. And therefore, the assumption that God is all good, therefore I should always be happy, which obviously is a simplistic way of putting that, but... Who's to say that? God can be all good because he wants something for me that's greater than happiness, even though I might not appreciate it, the same way that I might send my kid to school 
And that kid is not particularly happy to go to school because I have a greater goal for that child. I'm not saying that evil doesn't exist. I'm saying that evil existing does something to people which enables them to become a different kind of person, perhaps a deeper person. I'm not wishing evil on anybody. That's not what I mean. But sometimes I simply am talking in theoretical terms that the fact that God allows evil, but he's all good— doesn't have to be a contradiction unless we assume we know what good for us is. Not what happiness is, but we know what good for us is. And it's just another way of looking at the same idea, putting it back into the rationalist department. Right. That John Hick calls that soul-making theodicy. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Uh, that, that assuming that we have to be there. But again, that's the, we have the, we have the five postulates, right? And then you're, what you're doing is you're adding a sixth, right? And then this, right, the kasev shlishi or kasev hashishi. Hashishi, Okay, we're almost out of time, and we've gone way over because this is so fascinating. We haven't even touched on Revelation. We'll have to do that a different time. Oh, I guess we touched on it. We haven't really dealt with it in a serious way. But Jeff, I know you wanted to add something. I just want, I just wanted to go back to the conversation before about the paradigm of, of will being sort of the, the religious decisions are made at a non-above rationality. And I think I think about I haven't think about it that way. For myself, I think that, you know, as much as I can try to throw words on why I became religious, there's something that I can't really articulate or describe. And I think that really means that, you know, I don't, I don't think you could convince anyone else to become religious. I think what, you know, what Kirov does when it's at its best is basically for the people who have already kind of decided at some level they're going to become religious to remove the intellectual roadblocks that there, there might be might be thinking about. I just see this so so many times. You could talk to your blue in the face to someone, try to convince them to become religious. They're not going to move an inch. And someone who's going to become religious, they're going to move and they're going to fly and they're going to do their thing and they're going to go to yeshiva and they're become orthodox. And you couldn't stop them if you wanted to. I know when I was becoming religious, you know, I was sort of like, you know, people could say, go here, go there. I, I had a vision of what I wanted to do and I did it. And to me, it's sort of... Uh, the just seems like these things are really operating at some other level. I want to hear one final idea, a quick word from each of you on something which we touched on but didn't really get into, which takes the conversation in a different place. And with this, we'll conclude. What do you each say about the place of religious experience, which is kind of what you're talking about now, Jeff? The place of religious experience in terms of a person, anyone's gaining a sense of godliness. Alec, what's your thought about that? So I argued in the book that the the validity of the religious experience is the most um, direct form of knowledge that we can have of God. Uh, that I found it very interesting that like twenty percent of people, according to a Pew study, uh, claim to have had uh, some sort of religious or mystical experience. Even people who don't believe in God. Um, to me, that's the most you know powerful knowledge that I have of God's existence. Um, and this wasn't the case when I was becoming religious. I was becoming religious for other means. But looking at it 20-something years later, like that's the reason that I've landed on now. Um, at the same time, and I didn't realize this at the time, but Rabbi Soloveitchik in Vipashtra um, Misham is skeptical of the religious experience because it does risk reducing it to... I don't think he uses the phrase self-worship, right? But it does... Re- but it does reduce the rigor. You, do, you can lose the rigor because it becomes self-referential rather than referring to something that's external. And I can find the exact quote if you want to 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you if you want to read it after the podcast, but he says this in a couple of places. He might also say the family do. So I think it's the most direct form of of knowledge, but it's also something that, like anything else, we need to recognize its limitations because we want to be able to explain our faith rigorously and holistically. Alec, I really like your formulation there. I, I think that you know every I would I would suspect most Orthodox people could probably point to some set of experiences in their life that sort of they feel the show you know if they feel sort of the you know some sort of sense of God in their life. You know, I think when you try to articulate them beyond your inner experience, the you know the same way if you try to experience what you know articulate to someone else. Here's why I love my wife. It's 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 very you know it's sort of like dies in translation i think one th- you know on one hand we should be skeptical of religious experience but it's also a very hard thing to trust religious experience and i, I just give you an example you know something i've thought about for a long long time is an experience i had when i went to my the, the cure program that was pre, pre the shiva at the end of the program you know the 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 person who ran the program asked you know am i going to yeshiva or not and i said I, I you know i said i don't know i want to go shop at other yeshivas look around and he said to me you know did you see anything here that you didn't like and I think what he was getting at is you had an experience. Are you willing to trust it? And I think that's, you know, you know, a lot of people would 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 howl and you know, that question was a cure of manipulation. But I don't know. I think he was asking a very deep question. You know, are you willing to kind of trust certain experiences that you're having? Okay. Well, this conversation I think could go on and on. I find this very entertaining and stimulating, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Again, the book we've been referencing in this podcast is Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai, Orthodox Judaism and Modern Questions of Faith, edited by Jeffrey Bloom, Alec Goldstein, and Gil Student. Jeff and Alec, I appreciate your coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.